I want to open this today um, with this, this classic blessing that so many of you know full well. You hear this in churches of every stripe in variety, and it's usually at the very end of the service. I'm going to start it, and let's see if you could finish it, okay? The Lord bless you and keep you. Once you know it, say it with me. The Lord make his and the Lord look. We got a little rocky there at the end, but you know, you, you kind of know it, right? It, it, it's, it, it's like one of these things you hear a lot, the Lord bless you and keep you. And it's always been fascinating to me, the imagery it gives with what that means or, or the way it, it gives a picture of helping us understand God. May his face shine upon you. Does your face shine? Maybe not literally, but maybe it does, Right? Sometimes we look in a face and you can see someone who's, you ever see someone who's positively glowing, right? It's like their face is radiating. And I love the even more literal rendition of that blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord set his face toward you is how it actually reads and give you shalom, give you peace, the face of God. The face of God. Do you ever wonder what it looks like to look into the face of God? There's this big irony in the Bible where people desire nothing more than to gaze into the face of God and to have God gaze upon them. But then when he does or they do, they're terrified and hit the dirt and go, I'm a dead man. Because when you look into something that wonderful and that good and that holy and powerful, how, how can it do anything less than bring you to your knees and yet it's that very face of God that can floor us with a glance that smiles upon us and rises us up with his joy and his favor and his goodness. A blessing to have the face of God upon you. What does Revelation say at the last day when, when we're finally in his kingdom in its fullness again that we will gaze upon his face? To see God's face, you'll be forever changed. To look upon his face, you'll be forever changed. And until then, Lord, set your face upon us, right? Lord, look upon us. Turn your face towards us and all the goodness and joy, and favor, and shalom that emanates from it. Yeah, to watch his face radiate, ah, I want to see that. You know, you heard me mention it already. You heard Gwen, Gwen mention it in the video, but we've got Jennifer Olson with us today. Amazing woman who I've had the chance to get to know over the last couple of years, doing some incredible work in in some pretty rough areas of Honduras among gangs and watching the face of God shine upon these people. And I think you're going to see how the face of God is shining upon her. And she's here to tell you some about that today and her story and the work that she's doing and how she's witnessing God's face shine out into this part of the world. So, would you welcome with me Jennifer Olson as she comes up to the stage this morning. Jen, come on up.
Everyone, this is Jen. All right. Yours didn't get snagged on anything. You did all right on that. Fantastic. Let's get you mic'd up here and get going. This is Jennifer Olson again, currently serving in Honduras. Is it flipped up? There you go. Can you hear me okay? Okay. There we go. We'll do our best. If you can't hear me, just like flag me and we'll, we'll work on it. Well, Jen, thank you for being here today. Thank Thanks. you so much for having me. It's great to be here. You know, and especially given everything happening in the world right now, the, the, the issues with travel, coming in the country, getting out of the country, all of that. But let's just start here. Yeah. Hardly anyone here knows who you are. Yeah. Can you just introduce yourself and tell us your story really quick? Yeah, sure. I grew up right here in McHenry. I grew up in the Methodist Church, actually. So literally day one, I was born, started in the Methodist Church. <laughs> um, and so basically I finished high school. And very much of my faith story goes along with that because for me it was very much religion and I didn't understand that there was a relationship. To me, that was just so very lost. And so when I did go to university, that was the very first thing that I kicked out of my life (laughs) was the religion aspect of it. And so, yeah, I grew up right here in McHenry, went to Minnesota, the University of Minnesota for a year, went to Bradley for a year, ended up at University of Illinois, have a degree in astrophysics. And so very much God uses the most unlikely people to do his work. So astrophysics degree, Yeah. missionary work in Honduras. Yep. Can you connect the dots? I can't, but God could. (laughs) Show us how God connected the dots. Yeah, sure. Um, Very much we have, now we have a school sponsorship program. And so we, we hire a tutor to do that work, to work with our kids. But when they need help with math, when they need help with physics, things like that, we have several young people that we've helped to go into university. And so usually on those subjects, I'm the one that ends up tutoring them, although very much to their surprise. They'll say, but can you really help me with this? (laughs) Yeah, I went to school for a long time so that I could help you with this, actually. (laughs) It's just... Give us a pause here for a moment. Sure. Before even getting into the work there, which is incredible what you're doing in Honduras, I think a lot of us just need to catch up for a moment sure. and just go, how did you even get there? Because yeah. especially if you jettisoned religion out of your life for a season, went yeah. into a science which is typically known for being agnostic at best, atheistic yeah. at worst, for sure. um, and yet you came back into this deep relationship with the Lord. Share your faith story a little sure. bit. Sure, so I was still in university, and like I said, I had, I had basically cut God out of my life. I had always, I've always believed in God, but it very much was, he was a distant sort of a, sort of a thing, an object for me. He wasn't a real living being. And so I was actually, I remember it so very distinctly. I was walking out of the Loomis Physics Building at the University of Illinois, And I walked out of the building and it was the time of the year, so it was in the fall, where we were all applying for our internships. And so if you know anything about studying any sort of science in university, you know that your internship is everything. (laughs) And so I was walking out of my physics building. We had just been talking with some of my classmates about where we were were applying. So I'm talking Ball Aerospace, NASA in Houston, and this was my life. And so I walked out of physics class thinking of all of these places that I was going to apply for an internship of the grad school that I was going to apply to. And I had this very terrifying thought that this was it, this was my life. Hmm. And I'm very much an all or nothing person. And for me at that point, it was this very black and white, I am going to get an internship this summer 
I'm going to graduate, I'm gonna to go to a grad school. My goal was to work for NASA, and that was going to be my life. And that was terrifying for me. The thought of that was terrifying to me. And so the first thing that I did was go back to my apartment, and I Googled Christian mission trips. Hmm. For no other reason except to do something else the following summer that wasn't an internship. <laughs> and so because I had been raised in the Methodist Church, we did do several mission trips here in the country. I studied Spanish a little bit in high school and in college, and so I thought, oh, I'll go to a Spanish-speaking country. And so I pulled up the very first website that came on Google, which was Adventures in Missions, AIM. And so they do a trip called The World Race, which is 11 countries in 11 months. And I was still studying and I knew my mom wouldn't have that. And so I chose the trip that was just a summer long. And so my options for Spanish speaking countries were Guatemala, Honduras, and Nicaragua. And I knew just absolutely nothing about Honduras, just absolutely nothing. I'm not even sure if I can be very completely honest with you. I'm not even sure if I had heard of it before as a country. Um, and so that was the country that I picked to go to. And so I picked Honduras, went to Honduras in 2013, and just fell in love, not only with Honduras, but fell in love with God, which was very new for me, because God wasn't a living being for me. And so to fall in love with what I had previously viewed as an object just completely changed everything for me. Looking back on that, I'm fascinated just by like, like, like the terror of seeing this almost inevitability of life sure. that wasn't obviously fulfilling something right. before you. And then what seemed to be the randomness of how you oh, ended yeah. up where you've been serving now for seven years, yep. right? Yeah. Do you ever kind of like reflect back on that and just go like, how? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it very much, um, this is something we, we mentioned even just now that it's, you can look at the how and you can look at the why. And as a very logical, analytical person, it's very easy for me to look at those, the how and the why and the steps, and it doesn't add up. And as a math person, <laughs> something that doesn't add up is like, no. <laughs> but the only answer to that is God. Just the only answer is God, because there's no way that it could have happened in this very seemingly random sort of way, because, um, while if I say this, it's much to my detriment, really, I'm probably one of the most ill-equipped missionaries on the field because of my background. But God put me exactly where I am, and he equipped me on the field, which really, at the end of the day, what better place? But it's only God. It could only have been God. And, and just the realization that your story brings to me, that so often you don't really know what God is up to in the moment. And, and, and the things that are happening don't even make sense. It's only in retrospect that you see his hand guiding you somewhere yep. that, that not only brings joy and fulfillment to you, but more importantly, what he does through you to, sure. to this amazing, uh, forgotten, struggling, difficult part of the world. Tell us a little bit sure. about Honduras. Um, let, let's assume Whew. these people have not heard of Honduras before either, <laughs> all right? Tell us about your country, where you're serving, the, the issues yeah. and challenges there, the kind of work that you're doing. Just take it and run. Yeah, sure. So Honduras is a country. It's a small country about the size of Tennessee. You could put that into perspective um, land-wise. And population-wise, maybe around Illinois, around the same sort of population. And so it is a tropical nation. We have two coasts. We have the northern coast. We have the southern coast. Our capital is Tegucigalpa, which you may have heard of, may have not. 
it's very, it has a very heavily indigenous influence. And so we do have the Copan ruins, which were the Mayan ruins. And so we have a very strong cultural aspect with the indigenous cultures that are there. We also have a massive movement, of course, from the West and from the modernization that is happening from the US that moves down into Central America. And so Tegucigalpa is a, I don't even know, it's a hot mess. I don't know how, how else to say yeah. it really, but it was, it's been the capital for many, many years. In 1998, it was hit by Hurricane Mitch and had, which had just devastating impacts on the country in general. And so that in now 2020 Honduras is what has shaped sh so much of what is going on in that nation. And so when Hurricane Mitch hit Honduras, it kind of put us on the map. <laughs> it was kind of the rest of the world recognized that Honduras existed because of this devastation. And so with that, we had many, many different communities that were created, literally created from the ground up due to the devastation that happened in Tegucigalpa, in the capital, because so many people's homes were destroyed. And so the town that I live in, it's called Ciudad España, which means Spain city, was literally created by the Spanish corporation with Honduran Red Cross to build homes for people whose homes had been destroyed in the hurricane. And so when you move a bunch of people, thousands of people, literally, from a city where their homes were destroyed to a different community, you have all of the cultural implications, you have all of the societal implications, you have all of the poverty that comes with that. Because of course, if your home was in the shape that it could be in to be destroyed by a hurricane, it's probably because it wasn't a greatly built home to begin with. <laughs> Because if you live in a wealthier area, if you have money, if you have the resources to live in a home that won't be destroyed by a hurricane, then you probably have money. <laughs> but if you live in a home that's built out of pieces of tin and pieces of plywood that you found in the garbage, you probably don't have a lot of money. <laughs> and so that was what our community was built off of, of this sort of outpouring of very low income, very low resource people who were displaced from Tegucigalpa into Ciudad España. And so with all of the, the lack of resources, the poverty, that also comes with all of the violence. And so of course, in Central America, you hear a lot about the gangs, you hear a lot about the violence, um, you'll hear a little bit about the cartels, especially in Mexico, but very much the lower you go, the more crime there is which is true very much here in the US as well. And so in Ciudad España, the town that I live in and where I serve, it's, we're about 20 years old now. We have a little over 10,000 people. And so it's not by any means a, a pueblo, it's not a village, it is a small city. But you have all of those backgrounds, very different but similar, low income, low resource, impoverished, high crime, high violence backgrounds in this sort of hodgepodge, forced to live together now. And so that is sort of what we are dealing with in our community. And as I understand, predominantly you and your mission and your ministry, you're working among those either in gangs, trying to bring people out of gangs, prevent, uh, tell us some about the specific work that you're doing. Sure, yeah, so like I said, we the, the community that we live in is, I would say, 
95% controlled by the local gang. And so we do have a very small police station there. Um, they walk around twice a day. They walk around at the same time every day. They follow the same path every day. <laughs> and then the rest of the town is basically controlled by the local gang that is there. And so our goal in our ministry is to work with the high-risk young people. And so we, um, for lack of better words, work with the kids that no one else wants to work with. The kids that everyone else says, they're way too far off, they're off the deep end, they're too far gone, they're lost, they're, there's just no way. And so those are the young people that we work with. We work with them in prevention, intervention, and rehabilitation. And so with prevention, obviously, the best way to attack that problem is to work at the roots so that it doesn't continue. <laughs> because if you're not working in prevention, for no reason you're working in intervention or rehabilitation because you're, you, you have a job security, I guess, and <laughs> that it's absolutely never going to end, but we don't want job security, <laughs> we want it to end. And so we work in the prevention aspect of it to try to get young people off the streets. We have a resource center, we have a mission house that we have for them, just for them specifically, so that they have a positive place to go to do their homework, to just be with positive people an intervention, I work very heavily in the prisons, and so I go to the women's prison, and then I go to all of the high security prisons for men, and then work very much in the street with the 18th Street Gang, who is who controls our community. And then in rehabilitation, so what happens when they do decide to leave the gang? What happens when they decide to stop using drugs? What happens when they decide to come off the street? Because you can't just encourage them to make that decision and then say, that's great, I'm so glad you chose to live a better life. Good luck. <laughs> that's not how it works either. And so we do work very heavily in rehabilitation when that option presents itself and work with them to either relocate them or within our community to position them in a place where they can continue. And so a lot of that is actually swinging it full circle around to prevention. And so putting them back in school, putting them in a trade, getting them a job or whatever that involves. So I'm curious how you're responded to. Young white girl from Midwest United States coming in with at best, at least initially, limited language ability. Um, tell us about that. Yeah, so like I said, I'm very much an all or nothing person. And so when I moved to Honduras, and I had some Spanish, I thought I was great at Spanish. <laughs> I thought I was great at it. Um, How many days did it take to kind of, you know, <laughs> dispel that? Yeah. Um, yeah, it took me about a year probably to be fully fluent, fully bilingual, but it was very much a forced I am going to do this. I am going to make this happen. And so with working, especially with young people who will very much let you know when you're not saying something correctly, <laughs> it was a pretty quick process to be able to speak well with them. But I am, like you said, I'm a, I'm a little white girl. And so when I go into the prisons, I first started in the juvenile prison. And so it was about, there were about 60 young men they were the, they called them the, the tremendos, which means the, the, the tremendous ones. So the, the worst ones that there were, the worst that there were. And it was a very high security juvenile prison. I walked in and I have a lot of tattoos and I walked in and they, they checked me out and they looked at, they said, do you have any other tattoos? <laughs> and I said, yeah, I have a couple. <laughs> and they said, what else do you have? And so I told them and they said, okay, come on in. And so it was very much this sort of easing process, and that was about five years ago that I started working in the prisons with the gang. 
And then past that, it was very much a, I respect you and they will respect me. And so now um, I'm still a little white girl and I'm their mom. And so when I go inside now to the prisons, obviously I don't work with every individual gang member. I work very much with the, the young men who were in our town. And so then when they, when they are arrested, when they do go to prison and they are in prison, we do continue as best as we can that relationship. Because for me, that's what it's all about. It's all about relationship. And so I go in and they introduce me as that. This is my mom. And so, for example, I have a young man, his name is Norlin. And when I went in to visit him when he was recently arrested, he's very, very tall. He's very, very dark <laughs> and looks absolutely nothing like me, of course. And so I go in and he finds one of the other young men and he's, he introduced me. This is my mom. And so the young man looked at me and looked at him and looked at me and looked at him again and said, okay, it's nice to meet you. <laughs> and so at the very beginning, it was sort of this, un, this unstable, shaky, who are you? What are you doing here? But very quickly, I think they've seen that my, my intention is to love them well and for them to know who God is and for them to meet Christ. And they know that at the very base of everything. And so now they receive me very, very well because they know that my intention, while of course it is for them to leave the gang, but more than anything, it's to love them. You know, I mean, I, I hear this and just thinking about the, the exciting, terrifying, I'm sure heartbreaking work that this must entail and that you must see and live with and deal with on kind of a daily basis. Can you maybe speak a little specifically into just how are you seeing God working there? Yeah, yeah. So like you said, it is, it's a heavy ministry. It's not a light, fluffy, um, we work with kids and the kids are so cute or we're not planting what you would normally think of as a church. Um, it's not a light and fluffy ministry. It's so heavy. It's so, so heavy. We deal with a lot of death. We deal with a lot of um, murder. We deal with a lot of things that you just could not possibly imagine. And so sometimes on a very human level, it would be really difficult to see the face of God. Um, several years ago, just to give an example, because of the work that we do do with the gang, it's sometimes misinterpreted by the rest of the people in Honduras, most specifically the police. Because in a police state where the police are corrupt at best, <laughs> mm -hmm. it's very difficult to convince them that we are not doing anything wrong, <laughs> that what we're doing is not illegal, that we're not working illegally with the gang. And so several years ago, we had a series of three raids in our home, which meant that the special forces came to our home, the anti-gang police came into our home at 3 a.m. They broke all of our windows. They pulled us all out of bed. They put a gun to my face. They pushed us all to the floor. And I began to pray out loud, actually in English. And ultimately, one of the men staffed me up and he said, who are you? And it was just very much this, this I, I, I don't even have the words for it right now, um, but just very much God in that moment. Who are you? Hmm. Who are you? <laughs> because anyone else in that situation, and I'm not even fully sure why I did it in that situation, <laughs> would not have had that response. And so even to see then 
after that happened and to be able then to continue ministering in that way and to see God's hand in continuing to blast open doors when the enemy so clearly wants to pull those doors closed as quickly as he, as he can. But to see when things like that happen, for example, we had all of those raids and then two months later we closed on the mission house that we purchased, debt-free in this community. And so you see these very, very heavy situations. You see heavy suffering that we are a part of very closely tied to, but then you see just this amazing, almost like what we were talking about, how? How could this even happen? And for me, that's very much God's hand. We had a young man several years ago who worked very heavily with us. He was one of the highest gang members in our area. And he came over almost every day for dinner, um, would sit and would have dinner for us. And when he would leave, he would say, mom, thank you so much. I love you. Um, God bless you. May God pay you back for everything that you do for us. Um, and there was a day that he came over. It was a Wednesday. I remember very clearly it was a Wednesday. He showed up and he, he came to the front door, and he, which is a very Honduran thing that men do to women that I absolutely despise. <laughs> and they know that. <laughs> and so he came to the door and he did that. And I said, oh, hey, how are you? And he was no longer stationed in our community anymore. And um, he said, you know, mom, I just came to say hello, happy new year. It was um, January, I guess, um, six, five, four, it was January 3rd. And so it had just been New Year's. He said, I just came to say happy New Year's. I love you. Hope you're well. How are the dogs? How are the kids? <laughs> um, all that sorts of things. And then he said, I have to go because you know, the police are looking for me as of course they do for the very high up gang members. And I said, okay. And he said, okay, give me one last hug because you never know when it'll be the last. He said that to me. You just never know when it'll give you the last. He gave me this big old bear hug. He was a massive man. Big old bear hug. He said, I love you, Mom. Thank you so much for everything that you do for us. I, I love you so much, and I'm so thankful for what you do for us. And he was killed by the police that following Saturday. Hmm. And that was the last time I saw him. That was the last interaction I had with him. And so that very morning, I was washing clothes, and I had someone who sent me a message. She's a good friend of mine. And I had no idea what had happened to this man yet. She sent me a message and she said, God will show you whether or not a young man that you work with is with him. And I'm in the middle of washing clothes. We wash clothes by hand and so it's pretty arduous. And so I looked at the message and just thought, okay, whatever. <laughs> because I'm in the middle of this otherwise physical task. And so I read the message and it was like this strange riddle that she had sent me and so I just kept washing. Um, later found out about his death, of course, and didn't even think to, to, that message didn't even come back to me. The following day I went to his funeral. Um, he was shot six times um, by the police and he, they still did an open casket because of obviously his status in the gang. And so I went over to his casket and of course he, the body was awful, it was awful. Um, but I looked at his face and just saw this incredible, this incredible peace on his face and then remembered the words that she had said and felt very much that someone was embracing me and said, he's with me. And I thought, wow, that's, that's incredible. That's incredible. And he knew the Lord because he spent every day at our house. <laughs> and we would talk of the thing that we least talked about was the gang. And so even several months later, I had a dream that I was driving around town and came to a bridge. 
And at the bridge, I got out of the car and I started walking up the stairs and everyone started parting the way. And of course, selfishly, I thought it was for me. And so in my dream then, this, this man, this gang member comes downstairs, comes down the stairs, the same, man and it, the same man, and it was months after he had been killed. It was months later. He came down the stairs and he gave me a big hug. And he said, don't worry, mom, I've been with my father. And I woke mm. up. And so those are the times that we go through something very, very heavy. It's so heavy. And in a human sense, you think, why? Just why? But then you see the whole other side of it. <laughs> And there's, my, I am not responsible for their salvation. I'm not. <laughs> Praise God, I'm not. <laughs> but what I am responsible for is sharing who is responsible for their salvation <laughs> and mm -hmm. who can give them that salvation and who does love them unconditionally. And that's all I can do. But when I can see that other end of it, that on a human level, on an earthly level, isn't able to be seen, it's beautiful. It's so beautiful, and that for me is to see the face of God. To, to think about the sheer nature of grace that you're seeing at work. I mean, we, we, we banter with the word grace so casually, and yet here you are working with people who, by human standards, are the worst of the worst. Uh, people yeah. who have done horrible things and are involved in horrible things, and it can be so easy for upstanding citizens to stand with a certain sense of, if not judgment, superiority or condescension or something, just, has that ever been a wrestle with you, like, like coming to terms with seeing the absolute just extent of God's grace, or, or what has it taught you maybe is a better way of putting this about God's grace? Yeah, I think it's really easy. You read the Bible and you hear about God's grace, and it's, it's, it is a warm and fluffy, oh yes, I have God's grace, <laughs> which is really beautiful, and it's really easy to, to see that, and it's really easy to feel that, when you don't feel like you've done something that is undeserving of that grace, if that makes sense. For example, I've never killed anyone. And so for me to say, oh yes, God has given me grace, when I've not killed anyone, I've not done these horrible, atro atrocious crimes, it's, it's almost easy to feel that grace, if that makes sense. But it's a lot more difficult to convey that grace to someone who has done those things because his grace is sufficient. And that doesn't mean sufficient only for what I've done, but sufficient for the worst of the worst. And to believe in his grace is to believe that that grace extends to everyone at any moment of their life, which is also a really difficult thing to come to terms with. And that's something very much the parable of, of it's not coming to me right now, of the workers. And so you, you pay the same amount to the worker that starts in the morning and the afternoon yeah, and the evening. Yeah. And of course the worker in the morning is gonna be furious about it. And why? Because, but I worked all day. And why does he get paid the same amount? And that's the same concept. <laughs> but why is he getting the same grace that I get when I didn't do that? Why is, why is he considered righteous in the same way that I am when I didn't kill those people? And that is the absolute beauty of God's grace that there is no playing field. <laughs> when we come into his family, there is no level of righteousness. We are all considered righteous because of our faith. And I think that is the most beautiful thing to be able to share with these people who have literally no hope on earth. There is no hope. They are condemned to prison or death. And it's, 
so easy to look at those two condemnations, to the, look at those two consequences and think, oh man, <laughs> but then they're, they're, it's a lost cause. But to be able to bring that hope and say, but actually, <laughs> there is still eternal salvation for you, yeah. even though you have done these atrocious things, because those things are things that can be seen. But how many of us have those atrocious things in our heart? <laughs> how many of us have that hate in our heart? How many of us feel those same feelings, we just don't follow through on it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean that as if we're playing out in our minds to go kill people. I don't mean that by any means. But when we feel that hate in our heart, when we see that person in church and we avoid them <laughs> and we, oh no, I don't want to deal with that person today or those types of things, we're doing those, we're committing those same sorts of sins because for God, it isn't, there is no leveling. There is, it's yeah, a bird's these, eye view. <laughs> right, these people that, that you're, you're working with and getting to know and going, we're both sinners yeah. saved by grace. We're both Amen. people loved by God. And whatever course our life has, has taken us, we stand before him needing his salvation Amen. desperately. And just, oh, to be able to see that and, yeah. and, and be a part of that. Yeah. Um, switching gears just a little bit. Yeah. So. You started teasing out this bag a little bit earlier, and I, I don't did. know what's with the bag. And, and you're I like, did. I gotta bring up the bag. Can I bring okay. up the bag? Can yeah, I talk do about it. the bring bag? Yeah, do it, bring it up, so. bring it up. So yeah, so this bag, I call it my magic bag. Um, it was given to me by one of the young men that we work with in the prisons. His name is Luis. He is 22 years old. He's been in the gang for about six years now. He has been in prison for the better part of the past four years. He has a young son, his name is Justin. Justin will be four in January, and I am Justin's godmother. Justin's mother, birth mother, is also in prison, and so Justin visits me several times a week, spends time with our family, spends time with my daughter, um, just does life with us. So Luis is in the highest security prison in Honduras. He is in prison for illegal possession of arms, he's in prison for murder, he's in prison for extortion, you name it, it's on his sentence. So Luis calls me several times a week. Mom, how's it going? Mom, how are the dogs? Mom, how's the family? Mom, how's this? He is a womanizer, so he has many, many women in the streets and also in the prisons. And I, of course, know this about him, and I do my best to counsel him, but I also know he's a 22-year-old male who doesn't know Jesus yet. And so that's also a very difficult thing to grapple with. So Luis called me several weeks ago, and he said, Mom, I sent you something. And I said, okay. And I love how casual throughout this, it's always mom, mom. I mean, it's just, it really is mom. It's it's very much a a sense of, yeah, how you'd call it mom. Yeah, Yeah, it's almost a sense of urgency. And, And to be able to call someone mom, Um, So he said, Mom, I sent you something. Did you get it yet? And I said, no. (laughs) And he said, well, I sent it to you. And another one of the young gang members in town, he said, that person's going to bring it to you. And, and, and call me when you You're get like, it, call me when you get that? it, mom. And, yeah. yeah, and that's what I'm thinking, what did you send me? Oh, Lord, please, what, <laughs> what did you send me? And so the young woman who brought the bag to me, she said, oh, I just love it. I just love it so much. I, I wish I could keep it. And so then I'm waiting for it, just anxiously waiting for whatever this bag is. And so... <sighs> On one hand, there are just no words for it. So this is, this is the bag that, that he sent it to me. I'm going to try to hold it up as best as I can. 
So here on the front, it said, it says, Dios me, Dios me guía, which means God guides me. God guides me. And on the back, it says, Dios me ama, which means God loves me. It has these two really nice pockets. It's got this really nice flower here on the front. It's got a heart emoji <laughs> dangling off the front of it. Um, it's a beautiful bag. Please tell me he knitted this himself in prison. I know it, he because... didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I know he didn't. So anyone who knows me at all knows this is just absolutely not my style. <laughs> just so far off the deep end. And so when I finally got it, he said, Mom, did you get the bag? Do you love it? <laughs> and I said, yes, I do. <laughs> because how could you not? And so it's so much less for me what the bag is and what it looks like and so much more what it symbolizes. Yeah. And so I, um, we did a presentation last night and I had a picture up of Luis on the screen. So Luis is, he's a very typical, what you would stereotypical gang member. So in this picture, he's got baggy, baggy pants on. He's got, he doesn't have a shirt on. He's got his boxers all the way up to here. He's got a big old 18 across his chest completely bald with a blue bandana on. And in the picture, he's flashing their gang sign. And so the stark difference between this man who looks like a killer, who looks like a gang member, who looks like someone who has just absolutely no love in him, who looks like he is so far off the deep end that there literally is no redemption for him. And then I see this bag that he sent <laughs> and it just, oozes of love. Yeah. It oozes of a child who wants nothing more than to do something nice for their mom. And it reminds me of when I was little and I would try my best to come up with crafts that I could give to my mom for Christmas. <laughs> and she would always put them up on the fridge and they were horrible. They were just hideous. <laughs> But she would put them up on the fridge every single year, not because she liked what I made for her, but because she loved me and she knew the love that went into making that. And so while I know he did not actually make it, um, he would have paid to have it made. But I see then later, he went, the next time I went to the jail, I picked up some things that he had sent out for his girlfriends, which were a bunch of bracelets. And I thought just how, how typical he sends bracelets to all of his women. And then I get this magical, magical bag. <laughs> and I think it's a testimony in itself that yeah. no one is too far gone. And even when the process is years and years and years long, there is progress. And for me, this is just a massive testimony to that yeah. Pro progress. Yeah. 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 Oh, that's incredible. That's incredible. Thanks for, for sharing that today. Yeah. And, and look, you know, we, I, there's so much more that, you know, I, I know I would like to talk about and, and yeah. hear about, but let's just help the congregation here for a moment as we close this today. Sure. You got a table set up there. People, there's going to be some people here who have yep. been sparked by this, who are interested in this, who, who are going to want to come alongside you in this, you know, any, any number of scenarios. Yeah. Can you just maybe give them a little guidance in that and Sure. So to give um, sort of a background to that, I, um, in the home that I live with, we have a six-year-old adopted daughter, and then we have four young men who are between the ages of 15 and 22 who live with us as part of our rehabilitation program. So each year we do Christmas with them, of course, 
So that means stockings, we try to give them at least one gift. And then we do a big Christmas dinner for about 60 people. And so obviously that costs money. And mm -hmm. so we have three trees back there. The first tree, it says family. I think family Christmas. And so that refers to our at-home family, the people that live in our home with us. And so that there's some stars on there that say, it'll say um, family dinner, or stockings or gifts, and then it has an amount on it, and so if you'd like to donate towards one of those things with our family, there's a tree for family. There's a second tree for Mission House. So our Mission House right now is very much a work in progress, as we all are as well. And so we, have, we were blessed, very blessed, to receive a donation this year that allowed us to build the outside wall of our house, but we plan to build a second level. And so we, that obviously also costs money. And so we, there's another, tr another tree that you can donate towards the Mission House construction. So the Mission House is where we do all of our programs. It's where we do our girls group, our Bible study. It's where we have our resource center for our kids in school. This year we had 17 in school, and so we have a resource center for them. That's where we do our worship nights. We're opening a 24-7 prayer room there. And so that all happens at the Mission House. And so I believe it's the blue stars on the tree in the back, but they have, again, just different amounts for donation for that. And then there's a third tree that's for hurricane relief. So typically during Christmas time, we give out family provision baskets in our community, which is about $30. They have enough food for a family for about a week. Things like rice, beans, sugar, things like that. Just very basic food staples. Mm -hmm. This year, due to the, the two massive hurricanes that hit Honduras literally just within this past month. We will, be, we will be guiding all of our Christmas efforts towards the northern coast, and so we'll be going to a community to give out those provision baskets in that community, and then we'll be doing a sort of a lunch dinner in that yeah. community as well. And so the third tree is for that. And so if you're online and you are not able, obviously, to pull a star off the tree if you'd like to donate to either our family Christmas, the ministry house construction, or hurricane relief, that can all be done online as well. And what's your website or your Facebook, or like how, how do people connect with your ministry and hear about what's going on day to day, things like that? Yeah, so I do have Facebook, Jennifer Olson. Um, I post very few things publicly on Facebook, sure. just because of the nature of what we do. Um, obviously for the young people that we work with and also for my own safety. And so a lot of what you'll see on my public page is um, my six-year-old daughter because she's the <laughs> one that can be put on and she's cute. And so we put her on Facebook a lot. <laughs> um, we do have a private update group. And so if you find me on Facebook and you send me a message and say, hey, I saw you on the church service. I want to be added to that group. And so then I'll add you to that update and prayer group. And that gets updated at least once a week. And that has a lot of pictures. It has all that jazz on it. And then I'll also post the information for donating. If you're here in person, there are little cards that are out there that say One Day Revival Ministry. That's the name of the ministry that we have. And so please do take one of those cards. I know a lot of people say, oh, I don't want to take that because I know it costs you money. 
Um, I have been blessed with a wonderful earthly father as well. And so he prints them out at work for free. So please take one. <laughs> They're literally for you. I don't want them. <laughs> They're for you. Yeah. And so please yeah. do take one of those. And then also if you're here in person, we have, we call them connection cards. And so if you would like to be added to our monthly, I guess it's quarterly newsletter list, please take one of those connection cards, write your name, put your email address, if you'd like to become a monthly partner, if you'd like to make a one-time donation, that can all be done on those with those connection cards here in person. Oh, fantastic. Jen, thanks so much for coming in today. Just yeah. let's, let's give her a hand and just, <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks. And if it's okay, um, we would just love to pray over you as a congregation right yeah. now. And uh, let, let's, we're gonna sing after that, so let's just kind of rise here and we'll, we'll pray for Jen and the incredible people you're working with and the ministry you're doing. Let's pray. Lord God in heaven, I, I thank you so much for this, this woman that we've had the chance to meet today. Um, someone from here, one of our own, who went to the high schools that we've gone to and, and you, you, what you're doing in her life. God, each of us are called. She had the courage or, or maybe just the craziness to step out. Bless her in that. And I pray for everyone gathered here today, God, what, what are you nudging us to do? In the small and in the intermediate and in the large and the outlandish or the simple. God, may we be open to that. Protect her. Protect her from COVID, especially during travel. Protect her family. Be with these, these men and women who are in prison rightfully for some, for others maybe not. But regardless, God, people loved by you, people you died for, people who were broken, Lord, bless them, protect them, help them, bring them to repentance. And for each of us, God, who don't have to stare so face to face with our sin and our past. Oh God, may we never be so blind as to the corruption that lives in our heart, that we, we stand before you as they do, as sinners in need of salvation. Bring us to repentance as well. Oh God, so much to say, so much to ask, but may we just leave it here, Lord, Bless her and keep her. Lord, may your face shine upon her and be gracious to her. Lord, set your face towards her and pour upon Jen and her ministry and the people she reaches your shalom, your peace. God, we pray. Amen. Jen, thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much.